This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Tomorrow, finally, Toronto and Peel Region will join most of the rest of the province and enter stage three of reopening. So what does that mean? I bet that many Zoomers are feeling like I am. Now, I'm very comfortable with the restrictions of stage two, and I feel confident that I can move around as much as necessary and stay safe. I have to be honest. I am nervous about stage three because most everyone will be coming into contact with many more people. And my take is that this time we have to be more vigilant, not less. But let's ask the experts. First, let me give the numbers out to you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I'd like to welcome Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Thank you both for joining us. Hello. Our pleasure. Susie, Dr. Hota, uh, so is this a time where we have to be more vigilant, not less? I think vigilance needs to remain through all the stages of reopening. So, you know, just because we are going forward to a different stage doesn't mean that we can um, go beyond that, first of all. Um, reopening doesn't mean that we're um, able to go back to what we used to remember as normal. And, you know, things like physical distancing are more important than ever to maintain when it's appropriate to do so or necessary to do so, as well as masking and other infection prevention and control type measures. Dr. Furness? I agree. I think any opportunity that we can have to limit the amount of physical contact we have, bars may be opening, that doesn't mean we need to go. So I think really trying to imagine a new normal in at least the short to medium term where we're limiting physical contact despite the opening, I think would be safer and, well, you know, vigilance is the byword. What do you make of the loosened restrictions on the numbers of big gatherings, uh, albeit with physical distancing, uh, it's, it's gone way up from 10. Yeah, I mean, I think from my, my perspective, if people are able to maintain the distancing that's required, then it could be okay. Um, but, you know, it is opening up a bit of a can of worms. And, and the larger the gathering becomes, the harder it is to kind of monitor what people are doing and control what's happening around you. So it is a bit of a slippery slope. And I, I do think... Um, you know, over time, I worry about people losing their, their vigilance and keeping up the physical distancing. So I think that's something we'll have to continue to reevaluate over time and make sure it's being done safely. Dr. Furness, is that a mistake? I, I'm more concerned, I think, that there could be you know, some confusion in the messaging. So, you know, if I know people's names, then it's 10 people. But if I don't, it's 50, you know, in terms of what a gathering means. And I think it, 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 can, it can really lead, as, as Dr. Hoda said, to a slippery slope. And I, I, I also worry that, you know, we know that it's large gatherings that really cause bad outbreaks, that really cause big problems. And I would avoid those until next year if we could. What 
about something like uh, eating indoors in a restaurant and it seems really confusing. You, uh, you can sit, but you can't get up unless you're going to the washroom and you need to wear your mask unless you're eating. I mean, what about all that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, to me, indoor restaurants, its a, that represents a whole array of different environments. And, and really what people should be doing is evaluating that environment before making a decision as to whether they're comfortable going there. So, you know, the things to think about is how well are they adhering to what they need to be doing? How, how well distanced are the tables from one another? Um, what, what kind of, uh, you know, space are we dealing with? Is it really small and tight? And is it, you know, old, an old building where the ventilation's not very good? I mean, those are the things I factor into the decision as to whether or not it's worth going. Because quite frankly, there's some great options out there to get takeout and, you know, set up your own home and have a, a fine dining evening um, in the comfort of your home. Or, or a, a patio. I mean, one of the things that was concerning, I heard an interview this morning, Dr. Furness, with a, a restaurant owner, a, a diner owner, and he said he set up plexiglass in between his booths, but could not get a read from his local board of health if that was acceptable, because the province hadn't made a decision. Well, that speaks to exactly what Dr. Hoda has to say. Every restaurant's got a different physical plant, and, and even just, you know, how do you get from the table to the washroom? And it's, it's tricky. I don't, think, I don't think we can say restaurants are a good idea or a bad idea. I can tell you I'm not going to one anytime soon. I like the idea of plexiglass, and one way to test that, actually, regardless of what the province says, is sit there as a restaurant owner, light a match, let the match go out, and watch and see what the smoke does, because ventilation does weird things, and it's possible that the the smoke from the match will dissipate, which is what you'd want to see, and it's possible that it'll move in one plume to where someone else is sitting, and that's what you don't want to see. It's pretty hard to predict airflows, and that may be why that restaurant owner was having a hard time getting guidance. It's pretty, pretty hard to say. Okay, uh, I'd like to ask about some new information on the COVID death rate. Uh, a global study shows that the death rate for middle-aged people, people aged 50 to 59, is, is a lot higher than we would have expected. Same for people aged 60 to 69. I mean, we know that people over 80 are most vulnerable. Uh, what do you make of this research? They they had a fatality rate of 0.3% for people between 50 and 59 and 1% for people aged 60 to 69. Yes, I mean, I think there's just so much detail that needs to go into interpreting some of these data, and some of these numbers will shift a little bit over time, and, and that will reflect a number of things. Who's actually more likely to get infected and, and might um, be kind of influencing these numbers? And as different countries kind of experience outbreaks uh, involving different environments and, and different routes of transmission, um, it might very well be that you get some skewing of the data towards certain age groups. Um, and it might reflect some of the incidence of co comorbid illness or other health issues that are within these different uh Group. So, I mean, bottom line is, I don't think we're going to have a good understanding, really, uh, of how this affects different people until the very end of this pandemic or when we, we've gathered that sort of information at, towards the end and can kind of put it in context. Okay. Uh, Dr. Furness, can you give me an, a 0.3% for people 50 to 59? What would that translate per, per thousand? That's... 
Uh, that would be, you're making me do my math, that would just be three per thousand. But it's, it's there's a couple things to say. One is that, that that death rate assumes that you know how many cases there actually are. And this is slippery because it's an asymptomatic pandemic, because many people experience a mild version, depending on, and I think Dr. Hoda landed on this, depending on who, how you're doing your measurements, you know, who's being tested, uh, what's your testing infrastructure, what's your strategy, how, how much testing you do will determine how many cases you find. So that number is awfully slippery. But the other thing is, we understand what death is. That's a pretty clear measure of, of how serious something is. But we also have to think about people who are getting blood clots and debilitating strokes and other kinds of lifelong injury and long-term effects from this. So rather than just focus on the death rate being one or the other, I think it's really important to understand that even if you survive this, uh, it could be life-altering in that way. And that's something that I think we're learning about more and more. And uh, you were mentioning the comorbidities. Now, my understanding, the biggest comorbidity is obesity. Yes, obesity is is definitely an important factor, as is, you know, diabetes, which, you know, may go hand in hand with that as well. Um, and then other health, underlying health issues like chronic lung disease, even high blood pressure. Um, and as we learn more and more, we will also see, you know, people who are immune compromised and, and all these other things coming out as well. Um, so underlying health imp- uh, conditions are important, but that's not to detract from the fact that people who are absolutely healthy, as far as they know, coming into this are also susceptible to get the infection. So we, you know, we should be not just focusing on those that are most, most vulnerable, but all of us. Okay, I'm, I'm going to give the numbers out again in case people have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. I am talking to two eminent epidemiologists as we enter stage three. Now here's a question. You know, I've seen pretty good adherence to masking. Um, there's masks and some people using shields, and I have heard from some people that the, the shield really isn't as good as, as the mask. Uh, who has a view on that? I guess my view is I don't feel like we have enough data yet to really um, give us the kind of confidence that we would need to say it's either equivalent or it's uh, not as good or even maybe better than than wearing masks. Like it takes years and, and, and quite extensive research to truly understand how protective some of these measures are. I mean, there's some potential advantages on top of masks that face shields have and that they provide some eye coverage, um, which uh, would protect you from, you know, if you get exposure to your eye. And But one of the disadvantages is that, you know, some of your, the, the bottom might be open and if it shifts around, you may be still susceptible to some, some spray or exposure. Dr. Furness? I agree, and I would think furthermore that because I see face masks being worn, face shields being worn rather high, remembering that that a main benefit of masks is keeping your droplets to yourself. Uh, face shields don't, I don't think, would necessarily do nearly as good a job. But but I agree, we don't have the data I, until we have the data. I'm gonna I'm gonna say masks, not not face shields, seem to me intuitively to be better. And you're you're talking about face shields being worn high. So would you say you should sort of drop it as low as you can on your forehead? Well, again, it's part, partly what are you wearing it for? If you're wearing it to prevent people from spread, uh, you know, landing droplets on your face, that's not as important. But when you think about keeping your droplets to yourself, the, the lower the better. The more that you, the more that you redirect your, your breath downward, the better. Okay. Um, what other advice for people, again, as, as we head into stage three, uh, you know, more people are on 
public transit. I've got to say that's something that that makes me nervous. People uh, who are coming on public transit. You know, I take public transit every day still uh, in and out of work. Um, and I have to say that maybe it's the hours that I'm working, but my experience has been that for the most part, it's not been terribly crowded and people are trying their best for the most part, to wear their mask or face covering. I, again, I think that the masking is so critical in that environment. And if there's anything more that can be done to, to get that message out, I, I would fully support that. Mm-hmm. And what about, have you come into contact on public transit with people who are not masked, presumably if they have conditions or whatever? I've seen a few. Um, and, you know, I wonder how much of that is also lack of access to masks for some individuals. And we do, we do have to think about that. The, there is you know, it does cost money to purchase your own masks, and uh, that may not be possible for everybody. So I think that's an important thing uh, to consider. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at this point, we're kind of beyond this just being a matter of not being aware. <laughs> People should really be aware. It's all over the place. It's reinforcing the message and why. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Furness? I think that's a really excellent point. It's, it, it's easy to look at someone not wearing a mask when they ought to be and, you know, point the finger. I think some compassion would go a long way. If most people are compliant, if most people are wearing masks, and I, I do see that most are, that will keep us safe. And if you see someone not wearing a mask, okay, gently take two steps back and, and try and think, wonder what might be going on there that, make, that, that makes it that they can't. And, and I think that's a good way to think. Yeah, I mean, I I haven't seen any instances where where people are, um, you know, not compassionate. I'm just asking, you know, in terms of the ramifications. I guess that's a good suggestion. If you can take another two steps back, uh, you do that. Yeah, I think what, what's maybe a little more frustrating for me is seeing people who have masks, but they're not actually putting them on their nose and their mouths, like they're wearing them on the chin or, or further down. In fact, I've seen people come from outside, you know, enter onto a subway and then pull it down, and it's completely counterintuitive and counterproductive. Um, so, you know, I think some messaging around that as well, like it's important to wear it all the time while on public transit. Okay, and yeah, and I've also had differing views about this whole mask on the chin when you don't need it. Is that okay? It's, it's not the best way to store it. Um, you know, it's much better to kind of take it off and remove it and hold it from by the ear loops or the secure points, which are, you know, considered not contaminated. Um, if you're kind of taking that mask and brushing it over your face to get it up and down, uh, you can quickly lose track of what side is potentially exposed to uh, the outside world and what side needs to be clean because it's up against your nose or mouth. Okay, uh, Colin Furness, what would you like to leave us with as we head into stage three? I think the most important thing we can do is avoid crowds and avoid situations where people are indoors without wearing masks together. That's what COVID really likes. And I think we can have a lot of quote-unquote normal life if we, if we just really attend to that. That's what will keep people safe. And Dr. Hoda? Yeah, I concur with that. I think, you know, we it, these are all our choices to make. So we will do as well as we choose to do or as poorly as we choose to do. So, uh, you know, it's the, the choices in our hands, and um, I hope that we, we play it wisely. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Susie Hota of the University Health Network and Dr. Colin Furness at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Really appreciate your expertise. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, people, uh, Free For All Friday is coming up, and I am going to want to hear from you about what you think of the Prime Minister's testimony on the Wee scandal that's coming up at 3 o'clock today. And uh, we took a pause from that story today, but uh, there were some developments, uh, and I'm just shaking my head. And I'm almost more upset about the fact that it seems that if if this was the civil servants, they did not pick up that the We Charity was in turmoil and they were handing them this contract. We just learned that We paid $600,000 to American political consultants. Also, we saw their plans for paying their workers to administer this plan. And for the first 20,000 students' grants, which uh, would have been as little as a thousand, it would have cost a thousand dollars to administer, paying out a thousand dollars or a little bit more. And, uh, you know, this, this thing just keeps, uh, it, it just keeps me shaking my head, I've got to say. So I am going to want to hear from you on this tomorrow on Free For All Friday. And I'm going to give you the number of our voicemail also. So you can leave a comment, 416-367-9636. Again, 416-367-9636 is the Fight Back voicemail. Again, Free For All Friday coming up tomorrow. And we had a lot to think about today as well. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.